Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. Today, we hear the story of suffering for years in silence, pretending that everything is okay, of feeling too ashamed and scared to tell anyone or reach out for help. This is a tragically common theme in my practice, as well as the centerpiece of today's story. In sixth grade, Chris's once happy inner life steadily morphed into an increasingly frightening morass of darkness, obsessions of death and violence, and eventually the onset of suicidal plans and psychotic symptoms. Today, he shares the story of his frightening and accelerating descent into the abyss and the treatments that eventually pulled him out. Chris grew up in a close and loving family. He had friends and liked school. There was no apparent warning signs of the mental and emotional chaos that was about to envelop him. My dreams, which had previously been wild but not terrible, started to take on a very dark tone. My talking started to take on a dark tone. My wishes the same way. And it all seemed to come unprovoked. Hmm. As I said, I came from that that childhood background, that setting of love. What do you think your family thought? I mean, I hid it, it from them. Sense? You hid it from I them. I hid, hid it from them. So at that point in time, I didn't notice them noticing anything. They may have. You know, they're my parents. They knew me more than anyone else, better than anyone else. So I'm sure they did. But I purposely kept it all to myself. I never talked to anybody about it. I never, at that time, wrote it down. I never asked anybody if they were feeling the same way. I never bothered to look if other people were feeling the same way. I assumed it was all me. It was all my own personal thing and unique in my mm-hmm. head, and I was locked in there. Yeah. When you say dark thoughts, looking back to sixth grade you, was it, were it violent thoughts or self-harming thoughts? or So the violent and self-harm came along, but not until I was 15, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. So these things came first as really just a disease of emotion and thought, I would suppose. Interesting. So when you say disease of emotion and thought, for for some unknown reason, despite things around you being loving and supportive and good, some storm was starting to rage inside of you. That is true, and I didn't understand it. I started to withdraw from the social settings I was in. I would lock myself away physically in, in the room, um, my I was a very happy child before that. I was very friendly, made friends very easily. My thoughts were, you know, all blue skies, mm-hmm. fluffy clouds and puppies, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But it quickly skewed towards death and end of things. Very extreme. It, it, the shift was fairly extreme. Mm-hmm. When do you think people around you began to notice when you couldn't hide it anymore, when your darkness and your um, Mm. emotional storm, when did it become unmanageable and noticeable to those around you? Early high school, which I suppose is 16, 15 years old, I started to notice that people interacted with me differently. They talked to me differently, and it was the way that I noticed they would talk to the other 
weirdo kids for lack of a better term, I suppose. Um, and that's not how I thought myself, but it is very quickly how I came to think of myself because of that treatment. Um, and looking back, I may have projected that on them. That may not have been the case, but it was certainly an element of me diving down into the place that I would, you know, soon be. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guilt and a lot of, a lot of fear. Depression is not just an illness of emotion. It deeply colors one's thoughts, interests, and even beliefs. Chris's inner world began to darken. He was unavoidably drawn to themes of suffering and death. Books were something I was very heavily into. Mm-hmm. It was my escape. And the books that I started picking and that they would see were different. Darker themes. Darker themes, yeah. Death. Death. All that became very tasty to me. I just couldn't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how, I mean, growing up in a home of faith and going to Christian school and being drawn to increasing themes of death and mm-hmm. despair. Those things are so hidden from me. Mm-hmm. So when I started having these thoughts and these feelings and these elements in me naturally, finding them outside of myself is obviously very interesting. Inhaled all of it that I could mm-hmm. find, you know. Was there a turning or inflection point in high school where things started spiraling down more deeply, more quickly? Yes. So I went to one school that was very good, very healthy. It was a move to the second school where it was all new people, um, different sports teams, people on the teams. Just everything was different. And that feeling of growing alienation at the first school just came into full bloom in the second, and I felt totally alone. So that that was really the... It was the social change, I think, that mm-hmm. really pulled the pulled that support out from under me. So, mm-hmm. When did you start thinking about your own death? Mm. There was a book I read. I read in English class, high school. Everybody reads it. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of themes in that book, and one of them is the the character, you know, the monster who doesn't want to be alive, doesn't see the reason, feels cursed, etc. While I didn't necessarily feel cursed at that time, I sympathize with this dark, anguished, just not enjoying anything, no purpose, and it felt like everybody else was exclusionary outside of myself, and they just didn't understand what it was. I was a you know, recluse, secluded myself, and I had a computer. And I think this is pretty interesting, and a lot of young men my age probably engaged in this and still do, is videos, violent videos on the internet, Mm -hmm. gore videos, death videos, execution videos. And I think it's important to say that and talk to about it because, like I said, I think it's a pretty common thing amongst young guys my age who deal with the same stuff. I don't think it's good for... A period of years before I went to see therapists, and even while I was going to for the first little while, I would go home after school with these violent thoughts against myself mostly, but sometimes those thoughts get even darker. And this was when all those type of videos from around the world were put in, being put on the internet, and I would go home and I would watch like Faces of Death, I'm sure everybody's heard of that. That was the new hot thing when I was that age. 
And from there was a rabbit hole of those type of videos. And I watched pretty much every video that I could find. I'm sure that's on the internet from then until 2016, let's say. And what, and what were you getting out of that? Right. What, yeah, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's, that's important because I was getting something out of it. I was just like maybe, I don't know, violent video games can get some aggression out of kids. This was getting more sinister elements out of myself. There was this fascination with this real terrible emotion I was feeling watching these things. Mm. So was it cathartic or mm. was it fueling the dark fire? For me, it was not fueling the dark fire, which it very could easily have done so. Mm -hmm. And one of my warnings against it is that could do so for other people. Mm -hmm. But it was getting all these, I was, I was, I really had just this famine of emotion really during that period of time. So any feeling, any feedback, any kind of kick or high I could get, it was great. And so I absorbed all this darkness and that fueled the suicide fantasies as well. But more importantly, I would go to school the next day. I would go out and I had just watched all this and thought about it. And it was my, it was my world. And I was, I was seeing, I started to see people as bad. I started to see the world as a dark place. Like if these things are out there, you know, why, why, why is this a thing? It really was the emotional kick. It gave me seeing the emotion of the people in there and just the horribleness of it. It, for any person, it would, you know, well, for most people, it would cause disgust and horror, which I had, but I liked that. Mm, that was a familiar. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was so, it was powerful. So mm. it was, it was something, you know, it was something I could go home and read happy books or watch happy movies or listen to the news or watch cool cartoons and stuff, but I didn't get anything out of that. Mm. So I really delved into this. And so outside of the videos, I would start having these fantasies. I was never violent against anybody. I never had any violent intentions to hurt anybody. But all those things in those videos started flavoring my, my daydreams, my fantasies. So I'd be walking around setting up fantasies of this type of stuff happening. Death and killing and torture and brutality all day long. Like walking around school, walking around town. And just, was, that, was that scary? Was that odd? Was that? It was odd at first, but then it just became routine. Just this is the, nor the new normal. Yeah. yeah. And so whenever I started like talking about it or letting something slip or referring to it or letting it come out in my conversation with other guys at school just a little bit I remember them kind of reeling back and like okay weirdo like something is wrong with you and then that kicked off okay well maybe this is not this is not good this is not normal but I continued the behavior for for years it became a sort of through like college, just college years. Yeah. 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 And, and after, of, yeah. and of course in college when the, you know, the, the whole Middle East terrorism thing kicked off, there was a wealth of content mm -hmm. for that. So I timed it just right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people consume that stuff and I think it's very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I wish I hadn't seen it. Yeah. I very much wish I hadn't seen any of it. Have you left that behind? Or is that, yeah. It, yeah. It serves no purpose. It yeah. serves no purpose. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm much healthier in a much better place, I see that I don't get anything out of it. I just, it just fills me with 
you know, sorrow and sadness for those people that mm-hmm. serve no purpose and mm-hmm. I don't like. So, did you have any self harm or even move towards suicide attempts when you were in high school? I did a little bit of cutting, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I would hit myself a lot but more than that it was it was fantasy it was all my mind from got to a point when I woke up to when I went to bed it was suicide fantasies sometimes immediate fantasies of I'm just gonna go do something to myself right now but more often it was elaborate long form these fantasies that included a lot of elements that resulted in my suicide in in different ways and Mm -hmm. When I did that every day for long enough, it becomes, hey, I can make this into a real plan. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts to crowd your thoughts. And and again, no one knew. No one knew. You were no. you were alone, alone. Even my closest friends, I wouldn't talk about it with because being with them was a chance to get away from it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like I wanted to burden them or poison that outlet that I had. It was only after I was in it long enough and had some reprieve from it that I saw bad it was I suppose I missed so much and I realized that if I stayed in that state I was going to miss so much more but I didn't see that back then mm-hmm. so what kept you going in a lot of these fantasies especially when it got to a serious point where I was you know I was serious about it there were multiple times where I was well I saw what my family, my friends, the people who do care about me, what that would be like for them to find and deal with in the guilt from that mm-hmm. was a real motivator not to do it. Chris's depression progressed and worsened into what we call a mixed bipolar episode. These agitated and unpredictable episodes are typically harder to treat and they greatly raised the risk of eventual suicide. For Chris, there was now no more peace. Eventually got to the point where that was no longer the case. It was no longer a warm, darkly inviting, comfortable thing. It got to the point where it was pained and took on another dimension to it that I didn't expect. That first warm version was I could sleep for 12, 15, 16 hours a day and dream, and I was, it was a tiredness. But the second version was anxious, wired. There was no sleeping. Everything was electricity to my mind, just fire to my mind. This is starting when, when you start having these periods of... Late teens, 20. Yeah, electricity, agitation. Yes. There's there's no peacefulness or escape anymore in the depression. It's Right. Part of it has this electric quality. Yeah, the face of it changed from this childlike depression, let's say, to this full-blown, real deal, ugly, demon face that would just come with me everywhere. And it was infected everything people it was no longer just within myself this stuff spilled onto the people i knew people i just saw i saw everything as having this dark aspect to it this dark element to it 
and I felt it coming from myself, so that added to the guilt. But the people I was with, they seemed sad. People out on the streets, they seemed sad. When I would talk to them, when they would act happy, I'd be like, no, you know what, they're depressed, they're, they want to kill themselves, they, there's, they don't want to live, like what reason do they have to live? Like you know, your, your pain and sadness and despair was just washing everything. everything. So eventually that's to, all you could see. Eventually to just inanimate objects, I would see, it's hard to explain, but just cars or the table or just the walls seemed like they just wanted me out of this place. And the light seemed off just being out in the sun. The sun didn't seem like the happy childhood sun anymore. It seemed oppressive and harsh and strange and just having my eyes open and looking at things was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I just I poured my inside world on everything else. And at that point, the the escapes, the the ways to shift my mind, things to shift my attention, things to enjoy were just quickly leaving. And that went on for a long enough period where, you know, you can keep asking, why is this? Why was I asking, why is this the case? Why am I feeling this way? Why is this becoming my reality? I asked that enough times and you start asking, well, why not just leave? I eventually linked anxiety, which I dealt with in junior high, high school, forward to these IBS, these digestive problems. So I started seeing a doctor for that. And then I said, well, hey, do you think anxiety could have any component to this? Because I really think it does. None of these pharmaceuticals are really helping me. And he referred me to a therapist. And I started work with that therapist for anxiety issues and I didn't open up about any of the stuff I just said to that therapist for a while even in that setting with somebody who I knew would understand I didn't want to say anything I felt that when I said it it was going to be illegitimate and sound stupid and I would be a fraud sort of thing like I didn't believe myself even from there I from the therapist I was referred to a psychiatrist who I then continued treatment with medicines and further therapy. Being in these two settings really did save my life. I imagine that I would not be sitting here if I had not reached out that first time for help, mm-hmm. even if it was a small reach. I kept it all locked in and it felt good once I finally started talking about it so mm-hmm. now at this time 1920 are you in college are you home what's happening I had just started college yeah so I would have been a freshman or sophomore in college mm-hmm. I would imagine that was a difficult transition it is because you go to college and everybody's having a great time everybody's happy everybody seems happy everybody seems like they're starting a life doing something that's meaningful to them finding their path their purpose their meaning but I was over there, you know, sitting there thinking, well, I'm just going to see what happens here and then, and then end it. Mm-hmm. So my, my, my vision for the purpose there, my vision for my life was not the same as them. So because of that, I felt fundamentally different, separate. 
Sounds lonely. It was. It was very lonely. And of course, that transition from high school and college is fairly awkward anyway. And I was a socially shy, sort of awkward person at that point in time. So that just compounded the issue, Mm -hmm. you know. Here, Chris's mixed bipolar depression took an even darker turn. He began to experience a bizarre psychotic symptom in which inanimate objects radiated a threatening and sinister energy which would catch fire in Chris's brain like some kind of supernatural contagion. It's based on physical things. So let's say that even a wallpaper has a strange pattern that I find strange. It immediately brings all those thoughts and feelings to the forefront and attaches a very, a sort of spiky sensation in my mind and in my brain. It's a physical and emotional feeling that's brought about by things. Like, is it like a malevolence? Yes. Like you had talked about before how sunlight went from being a, you know, a warming, positive thing to being a almost an irritant, like almost like fingers yeah. on the chalkboard. Yeah. But now certain patterns, certain objects are taking on a demonic force. A, a demonic force. And the thing is with the mood and the depression and the suicide and the daily experience of that fluctuates on a scale. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's not so bad. Sometimes it has this face or that face. But this new thing was the same intensity every time. When it would arrive, I immediately knew what it was. And it, it's this it's this feeling of this other thing that comes in stays with me and sounds horrifying just it's so bizarre because it's a physical discomfort it manifests itself physically it's these do you remember the first time that happened i do i was in a therapist's office and i looked down at the rug and had a floral pattern and i immediately could not listen to what the therapist was saying anymore in these patterns, these these lines made a a burning sensation in my mind where I, I had to leave, I had to flee. And it doesn't go away for days. So just seeing this pattern inanimate inanimate object, if it triggers this this awful feeling sensation in your brain, it could be there for days. Mm-hmm. So it makes mm-hmm. you want to stay in a room and not look at anything. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. And I I struggle to find the words to describe it because it's such a unique thing I've experienced. Um, it almost feels as if it just puts a box around your mind where you cannot think or focus on anything else. Um, it's like an acute depression with a heavy layer of just hot anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a strange thing. It feels poisonous. And it feels intentional. Whereas the depression and whatnot feel it feels like a sickness but it feels natural in some way for lack of a better term but these new this new thing this this sensations based on patterns and images and it's never been sounds i've never i've never been triggered off by sounds what do you mean by intentional intentional so it feels like this something that's a good way to put it so the depression the heavy just sludge like darkness that fills you seems like it's inside me 
feels like it is a part of me in some way, even though I recognize that not to be the case. But this other thing seems that is coming from outside intentionally for me in particular. It is very personal to me. Um, that it has malevolent intention to make me miserable mm-hmm. and come about whatever end that that would produce. It's something I thought about a lot and I still struggle today to to describe, but it's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. It's more real than the depression is for me. It is, is a core component of my experience. And it still happens. Yes, and it comes and goes. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. It's transient in the sense that I can look at that wallpaper today, let's say, and I would be in a bad place. But in next month, I can look at it and totally fine. So it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Very odd. I have it in dreams sometimes. I'll be having a dream. And I have a lot of dreams and have had a lot of dreams. But this new thing since it came, occasionally comes in and uh, poisons that dream as well. And that'll, those sensations will last for a long time. And even now, when I think back to those dreams, I still get a little taste of it. It, it, it instilled a, a nervousness that I still kind of have today of like, okay, am I going to go out somewhere and see something that's going to freak me out? Like I was at a gas station not too long ago, and there was a pack of cigarettes or something that had a weird pattern on the front, and it was immediately took all of my visual attention stopped hearing other people and just opened the doors in my mind for whatever things that are associated with that coming through. It's very inconvenient, really. So it's not like the pattern is a special sign or has special significance per se. It's more like an in- intentional yeah, like force. That It has a common theme, like Victorian-style wallpapers. Mm-hmm. That kind of art, that kind of pattern really evokes it, but it brings an intentional i would say even just a being mm-hmm. just a an outside force into me after years of trying to hide from others and pretend that everything was fine chris finally took the opposite path opening up slowly to his therapist and exploring the depths of his self-loathing and shame it's a long process therapy is a process it's a journey and you need a therapist who will make that journey with you and i found I've been lucky enough to find those therapists who will do that with me. What did they specifically help you with? Right. So they became other people who at first would just simply listen to me and give me a feeling of safety and comfort where I could say all this. And they reacted in a way that made me, they're like, oh, that's, that's weird. They didn't do that kind of thing. You know, they made me feel legitimate just as a person, just my personality is to be somewhat, well, not even somewhat, a lot private, keep my, keep my thoughts to myself. And it was, I was a tough ache to crack. I'm sure I wrote a lot, which I think is important for anybody in the situation. Cause writing will make you see, it'll make you have some compassion for yourself. I suppose if you go back and read it at some point in time, or even if you just read it shortly after writing it, it helps you organize your thoughts. And I myself have a very, noisy mind, pretty chaotic mind. And when those chaotic elements are all horrible and dark, it's a bad place to be. So spitting all out on paper really helps. I'm wondering, did you actually bring writings to therapy or or did you 
tips sometimes bring content to, to, to therapy based on your writings or journal entries or yeah after each therapy session i would try to write as much as i could of whatever i was thinking based off that session um, or anything that would contribute to the next session and sometimes i'd bring it in a lot of times i would just remember it but i think to get to maximize therapy you, you gotta you gotta write mm-hmm. you, you gotta write down you gotta write what you're thinking what they're saying Do you think looking back, you could have done meaningful talk therapy, psychotherapy in high school? Yes. Or oh, you could. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. If, if you, if there had been maybe some intervention or some. Somebody available mm-hmm. at the school even. Mm-hmm. The problem with that obviously is at that age, it's very embarrassing. You know, there's a lot of shame involved, especially how the culture was when I was that age. I don't know how it is now. But if somebody had said, oh, you know, like I'm going to. A therapy session tomorrow would be horrible. You wouldn't want to say that. So the the trick would be getting there. But once you are there, man, if I had, could have made the same progress that I made now, eight years ago, who knows where I would be right now? Mm-hmm. You know. So the sooner you started the in therapy during college, after yes. co- in during college, yeah, midway yeah. through college, yeah, I would say, yeah. Can you can you summarize or crystallize what? was most helpful about going to talk therapy you mentioned just having someone to listen to or listen to you tell your story you, you, know, you use writing as a catalyst to um to, those things yeah. yeah but were there things looking back that you think were particularly healing or helpful or insights or, or things that your therapist did that yeah even just saying that's okay that's fine. That's okay to say. That's okay to put out there. Explaining to me that I'm not alone with that. Starting to show connections, reasons why this might not be, why it is the case. Making it into less of a such mysterious. Making it real. Convincing me that it's a real thing and that I'm not a fraud. That's a, That was a huge one. Showing me that not only is this real, but it can be worked on. That there's hope. Instilling mm-hmm. hope. And then there's a lot, lot of process after that, that, that brought me to this place. But though, those are though the key things are, are realizations, compassion for myself and understanding. And, uh, I was also willing to stick with it. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious too uh, to hear your thoughts on shame. Now I think of guilt as I did bad shame as I am bad you know that shame is this deep sort of core um, almost rottenness I think that so many people struggle with and you know one might argue I would argue that that's one of the most powerful things you can work on in psychotherapy talk therapy is is this deep sense of shame or brokenness or badness or yeah yeah Shame is a core component of it, and shame separates you from everybody else. And to have, well, to make progress in the sickness, you have to be with other people. To enjoy life, you have to be with other people. To make progress, you have to be with other people. And shame 
hinders that. It prevents that. And it prevents you from being with yourself. So shame has to be conquered, really, mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about faith. Because mm. you grew up in how that has played out as you've come in and out of the darkness. That You grew up in a family of faith. You went to a Christian school. Um, yeah. How has that maybe helped or hindered, or both, the the process of you healing and and finding hope? You would think that if you have faith that you would be able to sidestep all of this, all this, all these this darkness, this pain, and just put your faith in God and letting it go away and kind of give ownership over to God or your faith. And that's a, maybe that works for some people, but I can't see that being the case. It certainly didn't work for me. Now I'm not making any statements on if there is or isn't a God and whether faith is or isn't. When did, did you ever feel as a kid, I'm wondering, I mean, did you ever feel like you were being punished no. or you were being judged or that you were failing God or that there was yeah, any sort of... No. Even now, it, it's kind of weird to talk about because it feels a little taboo, like I'm st- stepping on eggshells because I'm not trying to... Well, it's what I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to, weird to talk about. But I never felt any element of punishment or shame or I'm wrong or um, being hell-bound or anything of that type. But I never heard these things talked about within the community either. There was never any obvious... It just wasn't talked about back then. Any, maybe in any circle, I don't know, but certainly not in this. Um, but no, I never felt any judgment or punishment. But then again, I never talked about it. I wonder if we might um, come back to the steady turnaround that's happened over the last three years. Sure. Um, we heard a little bit about how getting into therapy, starting to write, starting to leaving the dark um, kind of sadism violence videos behind, um, starting to open up about some of your things started to help. What other things have helped you? Sure. So I mentioned medication earlier. Um, yeah, tell me about your path with medication. So I was very against medication, as I think most people are probably. There there seems to be a bad connotation, at least when I was, well, there was for me, let's just say. Um, I was scared of it. I didn't want it to change who I was, change my mind. I didn't want to mess with myself, which was foolish because I was sick. And if you're sick, you need the appropriate things. But I did... I tried a variety of them. It is a journey with the medications often. It's uh, it's trials. But if you stick with it, I do believe that it can be life-saving. And it has been for me. The difficulty in enduring the, the, just the, just the, the, the effects that come with it. Um, I stuck with it and am now on a, a good arrangement of medications that seem to really just improve my life. Mm-hmm. exponentially mm-hmm. what it, were what were your major fears you mentioned that it was going to change you make me into a zombie make you into make a me zombie, stupid make you stupid make me flat 
make me um, sick, make me nauseous, make me all these different things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do, but in my case, and I stuck with it. That's the that's the that's the important thing. I think I found one that will probably keep me alive at this point in time. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious if you could describe what specifically uh, medications have helped with in terms of your thinking, feeling, and functioning. Sure. So the standard is my mind is very chaotic. Like I said, it's just it's obsessive, obsessive cycles, thinking all the time, insomniac most of the time because of that. Medications can greatly reduce that noise, um, reduce these obsessive cycles. And when the system of obsessive cycles is in place and all your obsessions are violent and dark and gory and suicidal and hateful and all these inwardly critical things, if you can break that, then there's hope with therapy. There's, there, there's, there's a, there's a path forward. Things can start getting through. You can start thinking more clearly. Um, and stabilizing mood is, I mean, that, that's, that's a necessary component to what I've experienced at least. Um, instead of rubber banding or frequent drops or just fluctuations every day, they're still there, but they're spaced off across months. Now, speaking of medications, ketamine has been part of your treatment. Yeah, ketamine is a very interesting one, one that I never thought would come along. Ketamine is an old medication which has found new use as a powerful and rapid-acting antidepressant. It is typically dosed by IV or by injection. Chris's treatments have been medium to high-dose injections, leading to a fully dissociated state where one loses touch with the present reality. So I did my first ketamine injection February 1st, 2018, I believe. So about a year ago. Ketamine has, at least in one instance, probably, maybe, saved my life. It has been fascinatingly effective for mood and suicide in particular. It's extraordinarily bizarre, but the effects are quick immediate. After a session, I feel completely different. I could have come in and gone in to get the treatment ready just to blow my brains out. And within 10 minutes of coming back, it's like I am in a completely new experience. And that lasts sometimes weeks, sometimes days. It gives a sense of clarity. It's like it power washes your brain or just changes the oil in your engine. It, it's, it's a resets your brain, gets all those obsessive tangles out, all those dark thoughts. But it, it is a, it is an experience, very interesting experience. And it's somewhat scary, especially the first time you do it because you don't know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And whatever it is, if you haven't done it, you don't know what it is. If you have no experience with it, you really can't yeah. understand I mean, can what you it is. Des- can you describe your experience of what a ketamine treatment is like? Sure. So I go to the clinic. I, we, I do some meditation. I do some preparation, mental preparation, get myself focused, and get myself in the mind where I'm going to do this. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to let it happen. 
I'm going to let the medicine do its work. I always have anxiety beforehand. It's a pretty anxious thing because in my experience now, it can be a fairly stressful experience. Do you want me to go through the details of what, it, what yeah, it's like? Yeah, please. So I recommend, this was recommended to me, and that's why I recommend wear a blindfold or a eye covering uh, headphones and laying down. I did it, intramuscular injection. Some people do it IV, but I did it IM. So you are in darkness, obviously. You have your blindfold on and your headphones and the first thing that I notice is that chaotic element of my mind, which is comprised of kind of an audience. I'm always daydreaming, thinking about things with other people in my head. It's very loud. I'm not alone. It's not a lonely place anymore in my mind because there's so much talk and fantasy, almost like I'm performing a play with my daydreams in front of people. Ketamine takes that away immediately, and I feel very alone very alone during the actual experience yeah when it comes on when the drug comes on that it takes away that loud noise in my mind and i am disturbingly alone the it has mental and physical effects the physical effects well they're both impossible to describe but you start to feel your body contort and bend and stretch and kind of crumple and fold almost like it's being thrown by a wave on a beach in this very strange way and it's pretty freaky the first time it happens and it's not particularly pleasurable but it's not terrible either and then your your body just kind of feels very uncomfortable for a second stretches apart and then it's just your consciousness next the whole experience is defined by motion uh, speed very rarely for me in these sessions do things stay still. It takes you on a journey through this, these series of voids, this, these watery black cisterns and these pits. Sometimes it feels like you're being lowered into this giant. Like one time I was sitting on the couch, laying on the couch. And during the experience, I was removed out of my body. I kind of see myself on this couch and I sense myself being lowered through this ocean that you can just see forever in of black and it feels very scary and lonely when i'm in there i'm no longer chris i'm just an experience i'm, I'm just I'm, I'm aware of being aware of myself and i'm convinced that whatever space i'm in is the space i'm in and i really do not remember being on that couch in that room it is a very powerful all-encompassing experience lasts about 45 minutes but oftentimes it feels like it lasts forever. Because after that initial stage of motion, that movement, it sometimes does stop. And the feeling of stopping is sometimes people have said, this is the K-hole, um, referred to as the K-hole. There is a sensation of being pushed into a crack or a hole or some sort of really tight little space. Um, and for me, I've experienced being left there for what feels like an eternity. Um, sometimes it is cold and feels like it's in the middle of the earth, nowhere. Being churned up sometimes in these gears or maybe these conveyor belt looking things. Um, none of this stuff really can you can picture unless you've seen it because all the words that you can use to describe this refer to things that 
are in this present reality, whereas that reality is just so much different, but there's no words to describe it. The more intense it is, the more potent the healing effect. How long does it take to start to feel better? So, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, not at all. So you, so I come back. I start to realize that I'm in my body. I start to sense it. And it's an amazing feeling, overwhelming feeling of being, it's like you're being put back in your bodysuit, like your little USB being loaded back into the body. And you feel your fingers and your nerves and your muscles and your joints. And it's like, wow, I'm actually in this. And that realization, for some reason, bestows a, a, uh, a new fascination and a new uh, enjoyment of life. You feel very cleaned. Um, if you, I was thinking of killing myself in this way or that, just, to be honest, I'm not interested at it in it at all anymore. It seems just like it seems a, a thought from the past, and I want to go outside and look at things, or just be with somebody, or it's like it's a it's a hard reset. It's it's, it's mm-hmm. a pretty pretty incredible. And how long does that hard reset last for you? The last one I did was multiple months ago. And I haven't had the need to go back and do another one since. So, mm-hmm. but for some people, it can last hours, days, months. It seems variable from what mm-hmm. I've seen. But it has been effective for me every single time. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the difference for you in what the ketamine treatments are doing versus your daily medication that you take in terms of how each is respectively helping? Ketamine is not a replacement. Uh, for the daily medications, for me at least, ketamine—they don't fill the same roles. They don't fill the same roles. Um, the the medications I'm on outside of ketamine seem to have taken a—they just—they just work. They just work. I don't think about taking them. They've integrated into my daily life and my daily health and my daily uh, just my my experience, my consciousness to the point where they're irreplaceable. I suppose. Whereas ketamine, I see it as an available emergency aid um, for when things get really, really bad and things kind of go outside the normal medication effect. But it also seems a safe um, add-on to those things, I suppose. How much do you still... You know, with the psychotherapy you've done, the writing you've done, the healthy changes you've made, the daily medications you take, the intermittent ketamine treatments, how much do you still struggle with kind of heading into the darkness and going into the abyss? Where if before treatment it was every day, all day, uh, today it's, I have a real dark period maybe once every few months, I would say, but I'm certainly not out of the woods despite it being the way it is now in such a more healthy way and being controlled, it's still there. I still sense it being there at pretty much at most times, even if it's vague. Even if it's not front and center in controlling my experience or poisoning my experience or uh, ruining things, it is still there in some way. It feels, I recognize that it's outside of myself, that it is not me, that it is not myself, but it feels like it's with me in some way. So I don't, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not saying it's it's cured. I don't know if that's. A th- I don't know if that's possible, but it's. I'm in a place where I want to keep living. 
And that's something I would not have said even just two years ago. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your story is very moving and, and I hope can bring some hope and it has. And I'd like to say one last thing about that. Mm-hmm. I, where I am now, I look back on the journals I've made, the writings I've made, the person that I was in the, in the deep of all this. And it, when I listen to that person talk, it's a different person. I can sympathize with that person. I can understand what that person is saying where he was, but you know, I want to be alive now And there. I see that there is stuff to live for. There's an experience worth experiencing. And I, I'm not killing myself every day in my mind. My focus is not those things anymore. It was a long road, but there is a road. And if you can just see, even for a second, that all of that is separate from yourself, then you might be able to see that there is actually a definable path forward out of it. And it's worth walking. It really is. What's most striking to me about Chris's story was the steady and relentless worsening of his untreated illness. We now have good evidence that episodes of depression, mania, and psychosis are toxic to the brain, and that the longer that psychiatric illness goes without treatment, the harder it is to regain health and stability. Another crucial part of Chris's healing was learning to put some distance between himself and his illness. As you listen to these episodes, I think you will find that all the stories share this hard-won but life-changing insight. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.